0: Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite.
1: Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry.
2: Well, welcome to this episode of The How of Business. It's Henry Lopez and David beginning here with you today and a special guest. David, why don't you share with us who we have with us today? Yeah, we've got an
1: exciting guest today, Tim Sanders, who... uh was the uh, Chief Solutions Officer of Yahoo.com. Is on his own now, been a polarific author, I think if I said that correctly. He's written a number of books, and his recent book here has just been released. But uh, Tim and I have a little bit of background. We grew up in the same town, and uh, we were on the debate team together, and we were debate partners. So we were great friends in high school, and we were debate partners. And uh, Tim carried me to the state championship in New Mexico, which I'm very grateful for. Because I can use that on my resume and uh, Tim went on and did some great uh, things in college. He was a national champion in college and extemporaneous speaking and uh, went on to work for a number of different companies and we'll get into that here in just a little bit. But Tim, we thank you so much for joining us and I will admit we are re-recording this because I messed up on the first one. So I want to thank Tim so much for his graciousness to re-record our podcast.
0: Hey, my pleasure.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Tim was an early member of Mark Cuban and Todd Wagner's Broadcast.com. That's where he started, which had the largest opening day IPO in history. After uh, Yahoo acquired the company, Tim was tapped to lead their Value Lab, which enabled sales teams to close hundreds of millions of dollars in new business through rapid collaboration. And in year 2001, he rose to the position of chief solutions officer and the company's leadership coach. In 2005, he founded his own company, Deeper Media, which provides consulting and trading for leading companies, trade associations, and government agencies. Tim is currently the author of four books, including the New York Times bestseller, Loves the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. It's been translated into over a dozen languages, and he's been featured on the cover of The Fast Company, USA Today, and New York Times, The Boston Globe, Christian Science Monitor, and CNN. Other books he's written is Today We Are Rich, The Likeability Factor, and Saving the World, and Deal Storming, which has already come out, and Tim's been working really hard on getting that particular book launched. He currently lives in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. So Tim, again, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll start the conversation off very quickly. But um, you know, in, in your current book, uh, Deal Storming, it really is, ch- is a fundamental change to sales. Both Henry and I have a corporate sales background, and in looking at that book and reading the book, it is a fundamental change on how we, we approach opportunities. you want to give us just a quick uh, overview on that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, Deal Storming is a book about how to create teams, even a two-person or a three-person team around a sales opportunity or around an account crisis. And the premise of the book is that genius is a team sport, especially in sales. And for so many years, we've approached sales more or less as a lone wolf. I mean, if we get really, really stuck, uh, say, if we're just an account executive, we might bring it up to our president or the business owner to get some help. But fundamentally, we try to do it on our own. And our research says that especially in business to business, regardless of whether you're a big company or just a small firm, it's getting complicated out there. There is so much pressure for us to be really good problem solvers so we can earn our way into service. And uh, just the other night, you guys, I was finally getting around to seeing uh, The Martian with Matt Damon. Great movie. And one of the most important points that the character Matt plays makes is that it's all just solving the next problem in front of you. When you think about what he did to survive on Mars, to grow potatoes, to deal with the fact that his crop died, and to find his way back on that ship... It was just one problem solved after another, and that's the world of sales. We have to eliminate this thinking that sales is all about the perfect introduction by a referral, or the magic presentation, or the killer close. It's more than that. It's about solving little or sometimes very big problems that stand between you and the done deal. And I think really for entrepreneurs of all types and for business owners of all types, knowing the art and science of making a deal is the secret to controlling your destiny for everything you're ever going to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing so much of that in today's environment with crowdsourcing and collaboration at levels that we never saw. And Henry, you and I were in the corporate sales environment in the 1980s and 1990s, and we were unique because we were selling large application software programs. And we did get to work as a team, but you know, th- there was still that, that overall thought that the salesperson was the leader and he was the guy you know, creating the direction and mm-hmm. And what were the differences between the good salespeople and the bad salespeople that you used to work with?
2: It also so much was about ego, and Tim talked about this and speaks some more to it, is that ego that gets in the way of saying, no, I'll do this all myself if I bring someone in, then I have to share credit. Uh, but the good salespeople, I was thinking about just that as Tim was talking about, that I was thinking about someone in particular. Well, the way they approached it is as Tim was saying, is one problem at a time. So I've got to get this connection, then I gotta get in with this person, and then I gotta overcome this next person's objection. And so that's what I observed in the top sales guys. But this whole concept of bringing in help is, is one I think that most of us, because we have these big egos, are challenged with. Too. Right.
0: You know, we, we don't want to admit that we can't get it done by ourselves. We are sometimes fearful that by, by sharing the experience with another person who's not in sales, we're going to slow the deal down. That's a real big fear. And I also think that We really think about sales from the standpoint of it's the salesperson's job. So whether you're a business owner that's not promoting this in your culture or whether you're a salesperson, you have to understand that in the world we live in, everybody is in sales. I mean, if your revenue is dependent on sales, then everybody in the company must be involved in the sales process. I mean, there's companies where it's really all about the perfect product or great marketing. But fundamentally, most companies, especially B2B, live and die based on their ability to land new business and to grow existing business. And that means everybody, including the receptionist, including the delivery team, everybody is in the sales department. And I think that's a really big paradigm shift. But the companies that make that leap, they win. Right.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The, the other thing is, as a small business owner, what happens is you are often all alone. And then you talk about in the book about the, the this team that you bring together for deal storming can include external members. And so speak to that, if you would.
0: Yeah. So deal storming is about creating this team that's got a wide perspective because multiple ways of seeing the world are involved that really harnesses the power of collaboration. And Oftentimes, we think of it as like, well, that's a big company thing, right? So if I'm at a really big company, I'm going to reach out to the marketing department and the operations department and the finance group and the customer service group and easy peasy, I build the team. Here's what I've experienced. Smaller businesses can leverage deal storming by tapping their networks, their business networks, their personal networks, their supplier partner networks your network is your ability to really collaborate quickly. So I'll give you an example from the book. Craig Golotti has a small architectural design firm in Las Vegas, it's called LGA. And they were trying to win a piece of new business here in Las Vegas for something called Opportunity Village. And Opportunity Village um, is a wonderful facility for people that are intellectually disabled. And while LGA has a lot of experience doing great work, say for visitor centers and uh, museums, et cetera, they'd never done something like this. So Galati's trying to win the bid first and foremost. And even though he's local, he knows he needs more firepower to understand better how they can write the perfect bid. So he reaches out to someone that he knows in Baltimore. Um, Peg Rodas. And he reaches out to her because he knew her from his trade association. They'd become friends. He knew that she had a specialty in working on facilities that were built for people with disabilities of all types, including intellectual disabilities. So he brings her into his deal storm because she's got a different perspective. And she helps them understand That the way they have to think about design is different because they've got to create a stress-free building experience for everybody inside it. They've got to create a series of texture decisions, color decisions, design decisions that help the staff do a better job with the actual end user. And they taught him all these different things he could put into the bid to really signal to Opportunity Village that he got it. Rodas actually participates in the finals presentation by phone. They win the piece of business, and they ended up including her in the actual build. And now she's brought LGA into her own opportunities where she needed someone like them that have an expertise in tourism destination, etc. facilities. So this is a wonderful collaboration exchange. And I think anybody listening to the podcast, you can create these standing networks yourself. So you know that, okay, I know somebody in town who specializes in Hispanic marketing, Hispanic markets, I don't have any expertise there. But I do have a lot of expertise at selling to telco. So now we both have a niche. So I can help you, you can help me. This helps you as a small business be able to put together collaboration teams that help you fight a bunch of bigger than your weight. And here's the upside. I believe that sales innovation, the kind of creative thinking that comes out of a deal store meeting, it's actually easier for a small business to execute this than it is for a big business. With a small business, there's no bureaucracy. Frequently, the owner is sitting in the deal storm and she says, I approve of this. You guys know from your corporate background that the enemy of creative thinking is bureaucratic structure. So, for most really large companies, the really cool ideas, the really out of the box ideas that can change everything often can't get executed. But for the small business, they can. And that's why I think deal storming uniquely helps the small business owner. Yeah, that
2: makes tremendous sense. I think you touched on also that because a lot of our listeners like us come from the corporate world, I think I know I bring to it this baggage of protecting the idea and shielding it whether it's because I don't want anybody else to get credit or I'm worried about the competitive aspect of it. But I think we're becoming so much more enlightened that actually when you let ideas breathe, when you bring in trusted, valuable people onto the team, and even if they're not in your company, like you just described in this example, that's really where you see this exponential benefit for small business owners, right?
0: Absolutely. Right. So What you're talking about here is this way of thinking, this silo mentality. And the silo mentality exists at big companies because they have budgets and they have priorities. And so oftentimes this causes groups to compete with each other. And they get hardened over the course of time, not just to protect their budgets and their resources, but because they begin to build up attitudes about other groups. So frequently sales, they think of the legal department or in some cases the engineering group, they think of them as the land of no. (laughs) Because every time they talk to them, they hear no. And it creates, you know, that scar tissue in an organization, causes them to not collaborate or be very tepid about it when they do. Small business owners... They don't have this problem. I mean, when I came up with the concept of deal storming, I was working for Mark Cuban in Dallas. It was the startup he sold eventually to Yahoo for all that money, right? Six billion almost. At the time, we were called AudioNet. At the time, we were probably only, mm, I want to say, 50 or so employees. We weren't that big of a company. So for us, Everybody was in sales because we were fighting for our survival. I mean, we were a very little company trying to beat big companies like Microsoft's Window Media Group or Real Networks. So collaboration was a natural. It was easy to grab Bobby in the broadcast booth or Justin from engineering or go grab Mike over in the finance group to work with us on pricing. That was a no brainer because in a smaller organization, there's a a richer sense of community. And it was also easier for us um, to tap into our supplier networks, whether they're companies we got bandwidth from or companies that we got gear from, we would tap into them. I remember in one deal storm, we involved UUNet, which was a leading bandwidth provider, Level 3, which is another huge company there in Denver, in your backyard there, David. Mm -hmm. And um, we also included Dell. And we got some of their sales geniuses involved in a couple of our bids. And because they were our suppliers, they were happy to help. And they really helped us win deals.
1: Interesting, interesting. So that... uh you know, one of the biggest challenges I think that small business owners has is how do you develop a trusted external network? Is there a way you could help people identify whether you can trust this person or not trust that person? Because you do have that feeling like you're out there all alone and it becomes very, you know, it becomes challenging to find good partners.
0: Yeah. Sometimes the best collaborators for you, just like, uh, the situation with Craig Galati and LGA, um, they're people that are in your industry. And the reason they're the most helpful is because they, they know the most, you know, at the contextual level, right? They understand your business. Um, but you worry a lot because, wow, are they going to steal my business? So there's a, a word that, that I like to use to describe the good partner, you know, who has all the great relevant knowledge, but at the same time, you can trust them. And I call them competimates, Okay. A competitive mate is technically a competitor, but you are friendly with them, and historically, you've never run into them in the market. And even if you did, you know they'd play fair. A competitor competes with you in the market, and you're not sure if they would play fair if you ran into them, okay? So, what you've got to do is you create relationships is just start out by sharing knowledge at a higher level not at the deal level so i think you know for craig and and for Rodas, you know the way they were able to build rapport was to talk a little bit about what's going on in the industry with design build so design build is a really big movement in architecture it has a lot to do with public private partnerships and rethinking um, how facilities are built where there's more of a single source experience for the end customer whether it's a government agency university etc so craig and rodas ended up building up a whole lot of rapport over their willingness to share everything they knew about how design build affected their business but it wasn't proprietary information like a deal that was in play or an existing relationship It was something that they acquired through hard work and reading and asking around, nothing proprietary to it, but you could just tell that as the knowledge sharing was equal and consistent, you could see that each of them cared about each other's success. And I think that's the little stepping stone for you to take someone that you know casually in business and elevate them to somebody that you would bring into the circle of trust.
1: Okay. Great point. Good. Because I've got trusted advisors and Henry and I both, you know, have a circle of people that we rely on, whether they're vendors or people that we rely on for information. And it does take a little bit of trust. And I do like the idea of determining if you think they're a pure competitor or if they're going to be somebody that uh, in the same industry, but doesn't necessarily going to compete against you.
0: I I, got to say this, you know, without going off into the weeds here, the trust topic is super interesting to me because I think that I think that I would rather trust too much than solve too little. Throughout the course of my career, I think that we're, we've spent a lot of time as leaders and as business owners trying to figure out how to get people to trust us. Right, trust what we say. Mm-hmm. Trust our services to be good. Trust that we will always look out for their. We're really good at that. But, but how good are we at increasing our ability to trust others? I mean, face it, we're blocked 90% of the time when it comes to trust. There was that one guy seven years ago that we trusted, and he did us wrong, and our ego gets huge, and we just worry that every single person in our life is going to do to us what that guy did. Folks, that is not a strength. That is a weakness. We are letting our past make it impossible for us to create our future. I think the ability to extend trust intelligently is a superpower in business. And the only way that you develop that superpower is to have a strategy, to test that strategy often to be very swift and decisive when someone displays that you cannot trust them, but to push your boundaries every single day and ask yourself, am I taking a little leap of faith? Because that is the only way you can develop the kind of trust that you need to develop to become a very innovative person and a very agile business leader.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's such a great point, Tim, because a lot of us have looked in the past where we did trust somebody and it didn't quite work out. But and then we start pulling back and we lose our creativity. We lose our ability to grow.
0: And that's your ego just killing you. That is your ego just holding you back, right? Because you're like, I never want to have this happen. But even in those situations where you trusted someone and they betrayed you, the question I always ask is, what was the collateral damage? Right. Like, what happened? Well, my feelings got hurt. Okay. How much money did you lose? None. But it made me look bad. Okay. How much damage came from you looking bad in that moment, say, for your brand moving forward? None. Then get over it, I say. What is the difference between someone betraying your trust and someone just being a loser that you never should have collaborated with in the first place who had nothing to add and wasted your time? We have that happen all the time. Right. But that doesn't trigger our ego because our ego protects us in that situation. Our ego says, oh, no, 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 David, that was still valuable for the sake of talking for 30 minutes. But when you are betrayed, your ego flips. And I, I just really think the secret to being more trusting and to be able to bring on more collaborators in your business life is to take another chance. And remember, for every person that betrays you, ultimately, there's nine people that prove you right by being trusting. And you've got to have an even accounting of those exchanges. Or like I said, your ego will just eat your lunch.
1: Yeah, that's such a great point. We always point to the one person that might have betrayed us, but the other nine people that we've worked with, it's worked mm-hmm. out. We don't think about them, but that's such a great point. And I'm really, I've got some issues here right now that I'm working with that's focused on trust. And I would agree with you. I'd rather be a little bit more on the trusting side and I'm going to get burned every once in a while. And that's part of being in business and part of doing business. But I think if you approach it intelligently and you look for telltale signs that maybe, you know, this is a good person to trust more. This is a person I probably ought to pull back my trust on. You can minimize that damage.
0: I mean, think about it this way. As a business owner, you have to hire people. I mean, talk about a giving trust. Yes. So you hire someone, they turn out to just be a good interviewer. (laughs) They, They can't perform. Right. That attacks you a little bit. But as a business person, you kind of write that off because, you know, employees are a cost of doing business and you're going to get it right, et cetera. And if you're a really good business owner, over the course of time, you get much better and you get really good at hiring and you get really good at thinking about the interview process so that you don't have those things happen again. And eventually, you're really, really good at hiring. Well, That's just an example of trust excellence. You just need to develop that in a lot more categories than hiring.
1: Right. That's a great point because that's exactly the situation I'm in right now with employees as far as learning to trust and, you know, trust yourself as far as the process is concerned that you will get better at it. But also, you know, you got to trust employees. On the flip side, though, Tim, I've seen people run small businesses where they've just completely thrown it off to their employees. You know, you read articles in the newspapers about the the accountant was such a sweet old lady and she ended up with $450,000, you know, that she embezzled from the company and and now the company's bankrupt. So you got to be able to manage like you said intelligently trust. Trust but verify might be another great statement that you and I've heard well, before.
0: Yeah, that's a Reagan thing, right? But I like that a lot. And I also think that as you trust people, you have to you have to have a fail-safe plan, right? So it's like let's talk about the accountant situation because I've known some small business owners who've lost everything because of that hire or that outsourcing partnership, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, 49% of it I think was on that accountant. Okay. But 51% of it was on that business person. Why in the world do you not have enough fiscal checks and balances to routinely look for deviations like this? That's not about not trusting your accountant or not trusting your partner. That's about understanding the strategic nature of cash. So so I believe a lot of times, you know, we file it and forget it. That's not why you bring an accountant on. You bring an accountant on to scale your business, but you've got to have processes in place to have transparency about what's going on with the money. I I had a friend once who, uh, he had a real estate business that went down because of this. And when they confronted the bookkeeper or the financial person that was involved, she said she'd never done anything like this before. But what can happen is when you are left with that much freedom and when you're left managing that much cash flow with absolutely no recourse and no one's looking into it at all, the temptation becomes irresistible. So, sometimes if you'll just put processes in place to signal to people that there's a high degree of transparency in what you're doing, it helps deter them as well and save them from themselves. Right. So, you know, it gets back to this idea of how can we be more intelligent in our decisions to trust people, whether it's collaborating over a deal, whether it's hiring someone or whether it's hiring a third-party service to do something that's business critical. We just have to get smarter about it, and we've got to think like a designer, and we've got to put things in place that help someone save them from themselves when it comes to these kind of things.
1: Great point. I want to go back
2: to the, the deal storming, putting together the team, like you just talked about it. And the other comment I want to make is I think also what happens for business owners, I know it's happened to me, is we, we're so defensive because everybody wants a piece of us. They want some of our money. They want to take us, whatever, uh, all of that. We, we get defensive. And so that's maybe also why we put up those fences to external team members. But in the organized phase, as you talk about it in the book, how do you, I know you've got a couple of ideas on how you avoid that bias. For example, you mentioned bringing in the receptionist. My, I come from the thinking is, oh, well, what value is she going to add? And that's obviously wrong. But what are, what are some of the things to think about from a small business owner as to how you determine this person, whether internal or external, might be a good fit on this particular brainstorming or deal storming?
0: So let me tee this all up. So deal storming is a process. Think of it as brainstorming with a lot more structure around it. So deal storming is a process that has seven steps. And we're going to talk through these. But the first step is to organize the deal storm team. That's a really important step. As you organize the DealStorm team, here's what I want you to think about. One, you got to think about qualifying, okay? Because to me, step one is always qualify with everything that you do when it comes to resources, okay? So the first thing you're going to do is ask yourself, how big is this opportunity? How big is this challenge? That's where you prioritize it. And then you have to ask yourself, how difficult is this situation? So if it's a very big opportunity, it's a very difficult situation, then you're going to need a a larger team. And when I mean larger, I don't necessarily mean a whole lot of people. What I do mean is a very wide set of perspectives. You're going to have to go really far outside of sales usually to solve a really difficult challenge. But if it's important enough, then it's worth the time and effort to recruit those people and have them you know, bring their resources because you're gonna owe them. Either it's an employee that's gonna be taking time off of her work, or it's a third party that you're gonna have to eventually repay. You have to qualify these opportunities. So once you say, okay, scale of one to ten, it's a seven in terms of, you know, value. Scale of one to ten, it's an eight. In terms of difficulty, that's a reasonably high score, 56. In the book, I have a whole chart for how to think about that. But let's say what this means now is that you're going to have to get at least three perspectives in that room, sales plus two other perspectives. So now, as you organize, here are the two questions you have to ask yourself. Who has a really big stake in the outcome? These folks are going to be highly motivated, they're going to be very forthcoming, and oftentimes they possess information at the edges of the problem space that's really going to be interesting as you meet and could lead to a breakthrough. Think of them, those stakeholders, as your blockers and tacklers. They're going to get stuff done because they care. Now, the second question is, who is an expert about my problem? So this is really interesting because you might say, well, in this situation, our problem has a lot to do with we can't get through these decision makers who control the security of this company's technology. Well, if you have someone that you know, either an employee or someone in your LinkedIn network who is a security expert, maybe they run security management for their own company. That's a great example of an expert to bring in to your personal situation. So it's really about who are the stakeholders, who are the experts. That's how you organize your team. And and final thing here, when you're organizing your team, you have to be very clear on what the value is of winning or what the value is of losing because not everybody's going to care about the fact that it's an $80,000 deal. But what they will care about is that it affects the reputation of your company, if that's the case. What they will care about is that if you lose this deal, one of your arch rivals is going to win that deal and it's going to put you in a bad place. Just always remember that as you add people to your team that are not sales or they don't own the company, the revenue may not matter. So you got to have a why that's big. And when you recruit them, you're not asking them to come to a meeting or jump on a phone call. That sounds horrible. You're signing them up for a cause and you're asking them to be on a team. And I think if you take this approach with qualify and organize, you are going to nail the first part of deal storming. Yeah, I love that.
1: Wow. Good stuff. Tim, I'm going to take in a little bit a different direction so people can, most of our audience here in getting into small business or is thinking about becoming a small business owner and typically they're coming from another type of job position, typically corporate. Can you kind of share your experience when you were at Yahoo, you were kind of at the top of your game at Yahoo and you were with a great company and had a great role, exciting role, but you decided to go out on your own uh, to do consulting and speaking and writing books.
0: So at Yahoo, I rose to the title Chief Solutions Officer. I had a really good group that worked for me. We were the SWAT team for big deals. We solved crisis inside the company of all types. It was a lot of fun. It was really hard work. In 2001, I believe I traveled over 300 days. I was like the wolf in Pulp Fiction, okay? (laughs) Um, But I tell you something, my entire life, I always knew that I did better work on my stuff than I ever did on their stuff. A real entrepreneur has this disease, this way of thinking that the things they love, the passions that they have, they would work two, four, seven over 100% engagement. There is no sacrifice that's great enough. They never feel burnt out. But when you join a company that you didn't found, Even if you become a team player and fall in love with that product or fall in love with that culture, if you've got this personality bias that you're always better at working on your stuff than working on their stuff, you've eventually got to make that leap. So while I was working at Yahoo, a literary agent in Dallas found me because I was giving a speech. This is back when I was with Cube and I was giving a speech about the future of the internet. And she came up to me and she says, I think you should write a book. And I was like, I don't know, I'm busy with my job, etc. I'm not really a writer, but I do like to speak. And so she explained to me, she said, you know, when I discovered Stephen Covey, when I brought up Tony Robbins, when I discovered Phil McGraw, who was an attorney, she goes, I developed all of them because the books gave them a platform to speak a lot for a lot of money. So she convinced me to write a book proposal in my spare time, And then we got a really big book deal with Random House for the Love is the Killer app. I wrote that book with a ghostwriter over a summer. Mostly he interviewed me like you're doing, transcribed all the interviews, and then really edited everything I said into a tight manuscript. When the book came out, it was debuted by Fast Company, who put the book on the cover. This is February 2002. And when I went to work the next Monday, there were like 20 voicemail messages on my machine from talent agents and speaker bureaus across the country. Uh, Their clients wanted me to speak at their conference. And that kind of began my move. And I had to work it out with our corporate. I could do so many gigs. I'd take days off, but the demand just went up. And there was some point where the risk reward put me in a situation where leaving Yahoo and going out on my own was actually doable. And I did take a little bit of a hit on stock options, but I made the leap and I've never looked back.
1: That's tremendous. That's tremendous. I love that saying, Henry, that uh, Tim has there, where you're better working at your own stuff than somebody else's stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's when it's time to
0: start your own business because you're just going to be a 7 on a scale of 1 to 10 on everything else. But if you're better on your stuff, you have a chance to be a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10.
2: Yeah, I love that. I'd like to take a deep dive for a moment on since we're on the topic of writing. When you write a blog post or an article, uh, even maybe a chapter for the book, uh, as someone who, who does a bit of writing myself, It's the struggle always with knowing when is it good enough or when is it good? When is it done? How how do you go about that, determining when it's good?
0: So when I write something, my intention is to give a gift. And I want that gift to be a takeaway, something that a person can put to use that really makes a difference in their life. And that's always my, my guide. Is the takeaway there? So it's never about being good enough. It's about have I reduced the abstraction? Is this clear enough? Is this actionable enough? So that's something I think about a lot. Now, when I write, frequently, um, I usually have a concept. I do more research. When I get up in the mornings as I'm having my coffee and kind of thinking, I'll often put on jazz music and get my whiteboard and my dry erase magic marker and begin to write down various bullet points and begin to structure a story or structure an outline for a chapter or a blog post. And then I use two whiteboards, by the way. One is what I call a working whiteboard and the other whiteboard next to it is what I call the outline whiteboard. So I write down a bunch of random stuff on the left whiteboard and I begin to formulate an outline on the right whiteboard. When I feel really good about the outline and I feel like it goes from A to B to C to takeaway, I take a picture of it on my phone, which synchronizes with Evernote. And I'll go walk my dog or something, or I'll go work out and I'll frequently look at that outline and I'll rehearse in my mind what I'm going to write. And I say it over and over again. Sometimes I'll record myself writing out loud, because I like to write by speaking. So I'll record myself writing this article, this chapter, this section, I'll listen to it back. And then what happens is there's a moment in the process where I feel like I'm locked and loaded and my fingers just are like, get me to a keyboard. And typically I'll rush in the house, shut the door, go in my studio, put the jazz music instrumental back on, start typing, and I look up and there's 1500 words. But it's structured it's not rambling. I've got more clarity about my assumptions. And sometimes because I've said it and I've listened to it, I go, oh, that's a good bit. You'll actually get nice little turns of phrases that actually keep the reader engaged until you get to the takeaway. So that's my writing process.
2: And you're fairly consistent with that process? Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: I would never write without doing it exactly like that. It's always like that. Inspiration, background research, outlining, rehearsal, writing, and then editing. And then usually multiple rounds of editing. I typically like to print something out that I've written, read it out loud with a pen and mark it up, and then make the changes. I do not like to edit on my computer because two parts of your brain are kind of going when you do that. So I kind of learned from a couple of editors I met that even though it's easy to just like look at something and type and edit at the same time, take that extra step and you'll do a better job of being able to have a little bit more perspective and you'll catch a whole lot more mistakes that way too.
2: Yes, yeah, so thanks for sharing that last part, because I, I thought it was just me the being a dinosaur needing to print it at the end, but there actually is some, <laughs> some reason behind that. Tremendous insight into your creative process, and this always gets me so excited, so I want to ask another question about that. Do you feel like you were always in touch with your creative process? And where I come from that is I believe that what happens to a lot of us is that our system, our education system, our society kind of tells us to put that away, stop coloring with the crayons. Were you always in touch with that creative process, or do you feel like you had to develop and rediscover that as you went through your career?
0: So let me answer this question quite directly. So I think that creativity and the creative process are driven by our need for cognition, our curiosity, and that as we commit ourselves to deep learning— taking on new subjects that we don't quite understand because they're interesting to us, the creativity naturally follows. So there's been a lot of discussion in education. Sir Ken Robinson really started it with a TED Talk that the schools are just like deprogramming kids from being creative. But I find that that's not necessarily the case. I find that what the school is doing is it's not appropriately motivating us to learn after school. It's not teaching us the inherent value of pursuing deeper and deeper and deeper knowledge and going further and further out on the edges. I believe creativity is an offshoot of learning. So I think that it's not so much that people say, don't be creative. It's that we say, get your knowledge just in time, or we say curiosity kills the cat. When we begin to take on that attitude for whatever reason, that we shouldn't continue to ask why, and we shouldn't push the boundaries on what we know, that that's the real issue that managers and leaders and business owners need to tackle. So, you know, you can... Limit people to, to your existing process, but you're not killing creativity. But if you allow people to just do business with the same knowledge they came into your company with two years ago, then you're demolishing innovation. You got to push your people to keep learning. Keep asking why till they get to the problem. Tell them it's okay to go Columbo when you're trying to crack the case. If you can spur curiosity, creativity will naturally come by right behind that.
2: Yeah, That's wonderful. And so perhaps it's this whole idea of study enough to pass the test and maybe that's what stifles it. But I love it. Creativity is an offshoot of learning. So it's about really developing and expanding your curiosity. And that's
0: what leads to creativity. Did I get that right? You did. And let's tie that back to the deal storming topic. Now, You know, I talked about there's this process and steps one and two, like one is qualified, two is organized, three is prepare. So I think that when you're trying to solve a problem, you need to write a brief. That's what all great innovation companies do, like IDEO Labs. You need to write a brief that's only three or four pages long that isolates the opportunity, isolates the sticking point. Like, why do we have a problem? Getting down to the root cause. In a sales situation, it isolates the influence map of everyone on the other side that's involved. And then it indicates all the activities to date and then gives a thinking assignment to everyone that you're asking to join your team. Just creating the brief we found solved the problem one out of five times. Because we're researching, we are preparing ourselves to prepare other people, but it's causing us to be more curious. Like, what's the real opportunity here? What's the root cause of the problem? Am I just trying to solve a symptom? Exactly who is involved in the influence map? This is all a curiosity stoke. So this idea of creating a brief around a problem and then making that brief an instrument to trigger curiosity in everyone that joins your team, they call that the incubation period. That is the secret to magic meetings that lead to breakthroughs.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic. And that's, to me that was that's been one of the one of the key takeaways and as you've spoken to on this conversation in the book as you say a done deal is a host of problems solved right uh, that's why this book really applies to small business owners it does. and by the way everything that we've talked about the links the books all of that folks you can find on the com. but yeah i just wanted to make that point i finished the book a couple of weeks ago and to me it just struck me as necessary for small business owners Uh, I have one last question, then I'll turn it back over to you, Dave. I'm curious always as to your morning ritual, the things that you do. We talked about the creative
0: process, but do you have a pattern to your morning that you think leads to success? Well, here you go. So wake up. I make coffee while my wife makes the lemon water. That is two warm lemons squeezed into water. It's the first thing you put into your body when you get up. Google that, everybody. It'll change your life. Over coffee, I like to read out of an ebook, maybe for the first 30 minutes. Usually, the ebook either helps me or it helps one of my main customers or partners. I like to call that slow food. Norman Mailer called his morning readings combing his brain. John Maxwell calls it owning the first hour. But whatever you do, remember breakfast is not only just the most important meal of the day for your body, it's also the most important meal of the day for your mind. So so make sure you start out that way. If you wake up and you experience a sense of dread for the day or uh, a little bit of stress or animosity about a situation, I want to challenge you to go through a gratitude exercise. I do this up on occasion. Where after I read, right before I crack open the laptop, check the email, and get going with all that other stuff, I think about two people that helped me yesterday succeed. And I think about their motivation, which is never luck. And I think about what they mean to me. And sometimes I'll even think about someone that I think is going to help me in the coming day. They call that uh, giving someone credit. That comes from uh, Dale Carnegie, 1930s. But the gratitude exercise will really get your day started right. And by investing the first half hour to 40 minutes the right way, when you open your email, your inbox will not signal to you that you are behind. You will not be letting someone else out there control the tempo of your day because business owners and leaders, listen to me, success is about having really consistent tempo. It's about having good energy and brain fuel. I believe that the emergence of email and social networks and the 247 media cycle has has created a nightmare for the average person Um, When it comes to focus and when it comes to strong morning units, I believe that morning productivity is at an all time low. So if we get up and methodically approach our day, we become very different and much more effective than everyone else who just wakes up, checks their email, goes on Facebook and lets the world just put them through the blender.
2: Yeah, I love that. It's it's like going into firefighter mode, as I call it. It's (laughs) like immediately go fight all the problems we have to face today. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, you know, one of the things I kind of like to do if possible is it's really hot here in Vegas. So we're in the triple digit zone here in Vegas. So I amend my routine a little bit. So what I'll do is I wake up, we start the coffee, do the lemon water, I come in, I have a third whiteboard that just has all the stuff I need to do and it has it ranked and everything. And I come like look at it hard and I'll just pick out one thing I want to think about and then I go walk my dog 15-20 minutes in the park. And I really don't try to solve all the problems. I just let them kind of roll around in my head. But a lot of times, You'll get an idea uh, it could be an idea for a blog post a solution to a problem whatever it is if you can just get that first little win on a Monday morning or on a morning it really leads to a breakthrough day
2: and how do you translate it to when you're on the road
0: what's well, tougher because when I'm on the road, my schedule is pretty crazy. Um, so I kind of have to transfer all that into listening to an audiobook while I work out in their gym in the morning before I start my day. So typically my road activity is I wake up, I go down to the gym, I listen to something as I'm working out, and I kind of rehearse my coming day during that experience, and then I come back up and get ready and hit it. So I have to adjust it a little bit.
2: Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. That's uh, really insightful. David, yeah, I'll turn it good back stuff. to
1: you. Yeah, stuff. Yeah. I'm the firefighter, so I'm the guy trying to develop <laughs> a morning routine, and I'm, mm. I'm doing better with it, but I still got a ways to go, still got a ways to go. But it, it's more habitual than anything else. You know, Henry and I talk a lot about it, but for me, the firefighter mode is more habitual, thinking, you know, I want to get out there and start solving problems, but I got to take care of myself first before I take care you of others.
0: Do. And I mentioned one other thing, too, is that, you know, the one way to get out of firefighter mode and be a more creative thinker, is to make sure you've got white space on your calendar. Okay, you know what I have on my calendar after this call today? Nothing. Okay. That's right. I have a completely empty calendar this afternoon. I've turned down three things that weren't strategic. I finished something on Friday so I don't have to do it at three today. I've got a four-hour block for project work. Now, what I'll do is I have a private calendar, and that's where I'll take that four hours and subdivide it. But that's just for me. I know from 1.30 to 2.30, I'm going to work on this content thing for Salesforce, and from 2.30 to 3.15, I'm going to review my slides for a gig this week, Except, I know my schedule, but it's a white calendar. I don't have a call. I don't have a meeting. Because when you have stuff on your schedule, you're always kind of getting ready for that next thing, especially when it involves other people. And there's just nothing that will make you less productive than having a full calendar. I give you guys one little piece of advice. This might be good for some, some young business owners. Years ago, I read a really interesting article um, about Larry Page, co-founder of Google. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but he does not have an administrative assistant. Hmm. Did not know that. Here's why. If he did have an administrative assistant, then his calendar would be full because people would be going to him or her, beating them up, got to talk to Larry. They get on the system. They get on the calendar. Guess what now? If you want to meet with Larry Page or have a phone call, you got to pitch him. He's going to ask you what it's about. Give me an outline. Well, you know what? That gets rid of 90% of the cruft that ends up on the average business owner's calendar. So I took a page from that. I do not have administrative assistant. I have various people that manage pieces and parts of my business for me. So for example, you guys work with Amanda and Amanda is not my assistant per se. She schedules me on approved media and podcasts, but people come to me. And they say, Tim, I want you to be on the podcast. I want to interview you. And I suss out its strategic value. And if it's a go, then I copy her. And then she does all that work to get it scheduled with you. But no one can go to her and just show up on my calendar. That's a huge distinction. And for business owners, you need to be as vigilant about that as your shipping expenses, which is a whole other topic.
1: Right, right. Great point. Great point. So one last question, Tim, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much for spending time with us. But for people that are thinking about going into small business that want to transition from a corporate environment or a different type of job and kind of run their own business, what advice would you give them? What pieces of wisdom would you give them? I know that's a, that's a podcast in and of itself, but uh, what would you what would you recommend?
0: Well, just make sure that if you venture off to form your business that you have a core expertise that is highly competitive and that you can't stop thinking about because it's really going to be hard to be on your own and you're going to have a lot of resource challenges and the only thing that's going to keep you above water when you try to win against bigger companies is the fact that quite frankly you're more talented individually than any one of them so just make sure that you're not opening a business because it's interesting, that you're not opening a business because it's a huge market. There's not a lot of people in that market yet. Just be very careful about getting out of your wheelhouse when it comes to founding a small business. Make sure that whatever you do, you're moving into entrepreneurship that plays to your strengths, because there's nothing worse than learning on the job when you're on your own.
1: Fantastic. Good. Good advice. So if people want to find out more about you, Tim, where would they go?
0: Just visit TimSanders.com.
1: That's fantastic.
0: TimSanders.com. If anyone on the podcast would like to download an entire chapter of my new book, DealStorming, you can download it at DealStorming.net front slash free. DealStorming.net front slash free.
2: Okay. Terrific. That's good. We'll have that on the show notes as well. So if you didn't get to write that down, it'll be on the show notes at thehowofbusiness.com. Two quick comments, if I could, David. First of all, Tim, thank you so much for being gracious and allowing us to do this call again. As we mentioned at the outset, we had a recording snafu on our side. Um, I think it shows your, you obviously, your, your willingness to share knowledge with others. So thank you so much for that. Uh, if you've been listening this far, folks, then it means that Tim got your attention as he has with us. I would say that this is a must-read book for all small business owners.
1: Great. Good. And Henry, I'm going to let you wrap it up. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you guys.
2: Thank you, Tim. So folks, thanks for joining us on this episode of The How of Business. If you're listening on iTunes, we would appreciate and thank you for subscribing. And we hope to have you on the next episode of The How of Business.
1: Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, Leave a comment on iTunes and go by levantebusinessgroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.